Romans chapter 6. We read from there this morning up through verse 10, and I want to look at verses 11 through 14. You know, the New Testament is full of practical truth about personal holiness, and in fact, most of what the Bible says about sanctification is practical. It's not merely positional. Let me explain what I mean by that. You'll frequently hear people stress that, in fact, you'll hear me stress that the ground of our justification, the reason why we have a righteous standing before God is because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us so that our good works, whatever we do that's good, does not add any merit at all to the righteousness of Christ because even the best things we do are tainted with wrong motives and selfish pride, and and therefore we can never live up to the standard that God demands. It's a standard of perfection. Jesus said, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, and I'm the first to admit I can't do that. So we need the covering of Christ's perfect righteousness in order to be justified. And yet, according to Ephesians 2 verse 10, right after the verse it says, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's not of works. Right after that, verse 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And Titus 3 verse 8 says, those who have truly believed in God will be intent to lead in good works. Hebrews 12, 14 says, no one who lacks holiness will see the Lord. So sanctification is an equally important part of our salvation, but it's the result of our justification. It's the fruit and the consequence of our faith. And I need to stress those things because we are hearing today more and more voices who suggest that it is inherently legalistic to call people to obedience, to preach the imperatives of Scripture, the commands or to urge Christians to be obedient, or to speak of anything that sounds like duty. They say, well, that's legalistic. I don't want to hear it. And let's be clear here. There is a sinister tendency in the human makeup, I think, to to substitute good works and pietistic legalism instead of simple faith in Christ, like the Pharisees and their first-century acolytes Described by Paul in uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, there are lots of religious people even today who, not knowing about the righteousness of God, seek to establish their own righteousness. It's a flawed and artificial righteousness, and that is the antithesis of genuine faith. And in fact, the very heart of gospel truth is the principle of sola fide, faith alone. You'll hear me say this all the time, that faith is the sole instrument of our justification so that nothing we do, no good works, no religious ritual, no sacrament, no meritorious deed, nothing we do furnishes any part of the righteousness that gives us our standing before God. And God's acceptance of us is grounded totally and only in the righteousness of Christ and our union with him, our spiritual union with Christ. So God receives us as righteous for Christ's sake, because of what Christ has done, not because of anything we do. And that, again, is the doctrine of justification. Don't neglect it. 
Don't downplay its importance. Don't imagine that it nullifies the practical duties that are laid out in Scripture whenever the subject is sanctification. Just consider how often Scripture calls believers to holiness. Scripture commands us to mortify our sin, to put to death our sinful passions, to to say no to sinful desires, to put off the old man and put on the new, to keep a pure mind, to to feed your appetite for righteousness and, and live a resurrected life in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, be conformed to the image of Christ and follow his steps, Scripture says. And the truth is, all of those things go together. They're still, they're, they're just different aspects of the same thing. And they are all summed up beautifully in Romans chapter 6, where the theme here is sanctification, not justification, but sanctification. And so in this hour, I want to look at four verses here that are at the heart of this chapter, Romans 6, verses 11 through 14, because here is a summary, a neat summary of everything Scripture teaches about how Christians become holy. And Paul has just mentioned, and we, we heard it on the Scripture reading this morning, the resurrection of Christ. He mentions it in verses 9 and 10. And then now he says, verse 11, "...even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus." Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Now, I want to unpack that for you, so let's look at the context. The whole book of Romans, you know, is an extended, uh, systematic presentation of gospel truth. And the, the outline of Romans, the book, makes a perfect outline of the doctrine of salvation. You outline this book, you have a pretty, if you do it right, you're going to have a pretty comprehensive view of the doctrine of salvation. So, so let's just quickly trace how Paul got to this point in Romans 6. And I want you to breeze through the early chapters of Romans with me. So turn back to Romans 1. We'll scan through this very quickly. Notice his gospel presentation begins immediately after 15 verses of greeting in Romans 1. So the first 15 verses are prologue, greeting, and the greeting culminates in verse 15 where Paul says, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he's so eager to proclaim the gospel to Rome that he decides to devote this entire epistle to that church, to that subject, the gospel. And everything from this point on then is a systematic exposition of gospel truth. And it starts with that famous statement in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, notice how Paul says very clearly there that the result of the gospel, if it's faithfully proclaimed, is the salvation of individual souls. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So you proclaim it correctly, people will get saved. You hear a lot of people today claiming that the gospel message is not really about 
individual salvation at all. It's you know, about the kingdom of God or it's about social justice here on earth or whatever. People constantly want to move the focus of the gospel away from the issue of salvation from sin. And sometimes you'll even hear people suggest that if we really understood the gospel, we'd be less concerned about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and we'd be more concerned about God's will in the here and now. And all that may sound very pietistic and, you know, really religious, but it's totally wrong. It's, that's pharisaical religion. And whenever you hear someone talking that way, watch out, because it is fine to be concerned with God's will being done here on earth, and obviously that's even part of the Lord's prayer. But Colossians 3 verse 2 tells us, set your affections on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Anyone who thinks a a heavenly perspective, a heavenly mindset is somehow contradictory to God's will here on earth probably doesn't understand the first thing about the gospel. And unfortunately, the church today is full of people like that. Steer clear of anyone who's teaching that. But follow this. Paul first mentions the gospel in Romans 1, verses 15 and 16. And then he immediately launches into his doctrinal exposition of the gospel in verse 17. So verse 16 says, the effect of the gospel is salvation. Verse 17 says, the subject matter of the gospel is the righteousness of God. In it, he says, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. But then he begins with a long discourse on the unrighteousness of humanity. These first three chapters are dominated by a discussion of sin and guilt, and Paul meticulously demonstrates that the whole world is guilty of sin. So so he says, not one person escapes the guilty verdict. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, you know those verses. Understand, that, that is Paul summarizing what he's just spent two and a half chapters teaching. And then he introduces the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the very heart and soul of of Paul's soteriology, the doctrine of justification by faith. It's also the central focus of the entire epistle to the Romans. It all always points back to this subject. And the section on justification where Paul is explaining this doctrine starts in chapter 3, verse 21. And it continues through the end of chapter 5. That's the, the key section on the doctrine of justification. And in order to sum up that section for you, let me just summarize it this way. Paul is teaching in this passage that sinners can have a righteous standing before God because of a righteousness that's imputed to them or reckoned to their account so that no one earns favor with God by their own works, he says. But in the words of Romans 3.24, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he also says in chapter 4, verse 6, that God imputes righteousness to sinners apart from their works. So he's making this strong dichotomy between my works, which are very poor indeed, and Christ's righteousness, which is 
perfect, as perfect as God the Father's righteousness. And he's saying, it's the righteousness of Christ imputed to me that gives me a right standing before God. In other words, our standing before God is a free gift of divine grace based on a perfect righteousness that exists outside of us, but it's imputed to us, and, and we lay hold of that righteousness by faith alone, sola fide. That's the very lesson of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 rehearses the benefits of our justification. Starting from the very beginning, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 say, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. He's saying we have peace with God. We have the assurance of eternal blessing. That's what he means when he speaks of hope in verses 4 and 5. He's talking not about a vague wish, a hope. He's talking about a sure thing, a certainty. We also have, verses 2 and 3, an unassailable reason for joy and rejoicing and an abundance of grace as well. And chapter 5 basically unpacks all of that. So that brings us to chapter 6, where Paul begins to explore the practical ramifications of this doctrine of justification. And he begins with a question, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if think about this. If we, if we obtain a right standing with God on the basis of Christ's work and not because of what we do or don't do, if salvation is a free gift, then does that mean we can just continue in sin? Does the doctrine of justification by faith give us license to sin? And Paul immediately answers that question in clear and unambiguous terms. Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then the remainder of chapters 6 and 7 become an explanation of what he means by that one statement. In what sense have we died to sin? It's like he brings that out of nowhere. Now he's going to explain it. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And if we are truly dead to sin, why is it such a struggle for us to overcome sin in our daily lives? We all have those questions. If you've never asked them, then you haven't thought deeply enough about the gospel. But this issue it introduces a significant change in subject for Paul. So he moves from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. And the focus shifts temporarily in chapter 6 and 7 from the issue of our standing before God, justification, to the question of our daily walk, our sanctification. And it's absolutely vital to to keep these two doctrines of justification and sanctification distinct, although they, they go hand in hand in a way that makes them practically inseparable, they are not the same thing. They can never be completely divorced from one another, but they also should never be confused. So that's what he's trying to do. Now, I hope you haven't tuned me out, because if it sounds like I'm about to go into a theoretical discussion of some doctrinal fine point here, some of you are going to be tempted to think, okay, well, this is not for me. I'm not a theologian. You know, give me the practical stuff and, and leave the doctrinal details to the seminary students. And we have some of them in here. 
But this is not a doctrinal fine point. This is not theological hair splitting. And it's not just academic. It is very practical. Right here at this very point, I would say, is where New Testament doctrine becomes most practical. And in fact, I'd say that if you don't understand anything else about the theology of the gospel, you need to understand what justification is and what sanctification is and how the two things are different. Because this has huge ramifications for how you live as a Christian. And in fact, if you want to see how important and how practical this doctrine is, just look at the confusion and corruption that exists in the Roman Catholic Church from the sale of indulgences and and other abuses that led to the Protestant Reformation to the widespread sexual misconduct among Roman Catholic priests today. I'm not exaggerating when I say that all, all of that, all of the problems you see with Roman Catholicism are ultimately rooted in Roman Catholicism's failure to understand the proper biblical distinction between justification and sanctification. And, and so that the most fundamental error of Roman Catholic doctrine is this very thing. They mingle justification with sanctification. They combine and confuse what needs to be kept separate, distinct, And from that one mistake, all their other errors flow. Let me try to explain what I mean. Justification is instantaneous. It is what occurs at the moment you believe. Your sins are forgiven. Your record is wiped clean of all guilt, past, present, and future. And Christ purchased that forgiveness by taking the full weight of sin's guilt on himself and paying the penalty for it completely. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's 1 Peter 2.24. Or Isaiah 53 verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, which is, that's what the cross was all about. Christ is taking the punishment for the sins of people who would repent of their sins and believe in him. He paid the full guilt, of the, he paid the full weight, the full cost of all the guilt, of all the sins, of all the people who would ever believe. But there is something more in the doctrine of justification than just the forgiveness of sins. Christ did not merely take our sins and erase our guilt. He also provides for us a perfect righteousness. So that there's an exchange here. He took the guilt of our sins. We get credit for his righteousness. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And which is a different way of saying Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, same way our sins were imputed to him. And that becomes the basis of our standing before God. Our sins are forgiven. We're given a perfect righteousness, and so God accepts us as if we were guiltless and perfectly righteous because he has clothed us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so now, as believers, we stand before God not having a righteousness of our own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God through faith. Those are Paul's words from Philippians 3, 9. 
So understand this. Justification occurs in an instant, and it is complete for all eternity. Justification is not a process. It's a legal decree from the divine judge who declares us once and for all not guilty, but fully and perfectly righteous, and he does that solely on the basis of what Christ has done for us, not, not at all because of anything we do to earn it. And that's what Scripture means when it says, we have been saved by grace through faith and not by works which we have done in righteousness. And the proof that justification is a one-time event and, and not a drawn-out process, the proof is that Paul always speaks of it for believers as an accomplished fact and a past-tense reality in the life of every believer. Beginning of Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He does it again in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is his whole point in both Romans and Galatians, that justification is full and final on the basis of Christ's work alone, so that for those who trust Christ, our standing before God is a settled issue. It's not something we're working for. It's something we've been given by grace, a perfect standing before God. Romans 5, 2. We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope, in the confident expectation of the glory of God. Now, think with me. If that were not true, if, if our justification were just an incomplete process that it's up to us to, to finish the work and, and it won't be settled until the final judgment, if that were the case, Paul would have no reason whatsoever to raise the question that he deals with at the beginning of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? If our justification, the question of it still hung in the air, that we, nobody would ask that question. Of course we shouldn't sin because we have to finish the work that Christ started. That's how, I don't know that they put it in those words, but that's really how Roman Catholicism teaches it. We have to finish the work that Christ began. So our justification then would depend in the end on our own righteousness. And, and if that were the case, no one would ever ask this question at the beginning of Romans 6. But the whole point of Paul's teaching up to this point has been to say and to stress and to reiterate repeatedly that justification is free and final and that we are secure in Christ because of what Christ has done, not because of anything we do. And, and Paul will have even more to say about our eternal security when he gets to Romans 8. But here, he interrupts the discussion of our justification in order to deal with the obvious question. If our standing before God is that secure, well, why not just continue in sin? And that question brings up the issue of sanctification. Now, sanctification is the ongoing work of God in us whereby he conforms us gradually to the image of his Son. So unlike justification, sanctification is a process. Having given us a secure standing before God in Christ, having imputed Christ's righteousness to our account, God is now bringing us into practical conformity with his righteousness. In other words, when God justifies us, he imputes righteousness to us. 
when he sanctifies us, he imparts righteousness to us. Both things happen in the life of every believer, but our standing before God is established by our justification, not by our sanctification. And the reason for this is obvious. In order to have a righteous standing before God, we need a perfect righteousness. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, where he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the righteousness of sanctification, no matter how hard I try, no matter how well I do, my righteousness is always imperfect and incomplete, and it will remain imperfect and incomplete until I'm finally glorified. The same thing is true with you. So we need a better righteousness than any righteousness that we could ever attain on our own. And what Christ does as our Savior is supply that righteousness for us. So justification forever settles our eternal standing before God. And as I said, virtually all the errors of Roman Catholic doctrine stem from their confusion on this point. You know, they mingle justification and sanctification so that according to Roman Catholic teaching, until we are truly and fully perfected by sanctification, our justification isn't complete and we're not ready for heaven. In other words, they teach that justification is a process that's dependent on sanctification. And that's why they sell indulgences, because their theology doesn't permit Christians to enjoy the full and free forgiveness of justification. It's also why they invented the doctrine of purgatory, to explain how people who die in a state of imperfection, how do they get into heaven? Well, you have to have, in the Catholic system, you have to have purgatory to make that happen. Purgatory is the place they invented to explain how the sinner's own practical righteousness, the righteousness of sanctification, can actually ultimately be perfected enough to please God. And it's an unnecessary doctrine if you understand that we are justified solely on the basis of Christ's already perfect righteousness. So the Catholic confusion on justification also explains why it is that authentic holiness, personal sanctification, is so elusive even among their clergy, because true holiness is the fruit of a right standing before God. Sanctification is a fruit of justifying faith, and therefore you cannot even begin to understand and participate in authentic sanctification until you've laid hold of justification by faith. So if you put the cart before the horse you won't get anywhere. And if you think justification is a reward for your sanctification rather than a fruit of it, then you'll get nowhere spiritually. And here in Romans 6, Paul is dealing with those very issues. He's explaining why people who are already justified and fully accepted by God in spite of their sin, how is it that they can continue, they cannot continue to sin in their daily walk? What What keeps them from sinning? And so Paul is showing us the relationship between justification and sanctification. Remember, that's the issue Paul raises at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 6. If we're justified by faith and if we're fully accepted by God for the sake of what Christ has already done on our behalf, what would keep us from continuing in sin? 
And he has an answer to that question, one answer to that question. And everything else in Romans 6 flows from his answer to that question. And here's the answer he gives to that question. We cannot continue in sin because those who are justified are spiritually united with Christ. After all, this is the whole point of justification. Christ's life counts for our life. His righteousness counts as our righteousness, meaning his death counts as our death. And we even participate in his resurrection. We are spiritually united with Christ in the most intimate and inseparable way so that it's fitting to say, as Paul does in Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. The closest earthly comparison to any of this is marriage, where two become one flesh. And we are united with Christ in a spiritual union that, in spiritual terms, is even more intimate than that. The idea of union with Christ is a a constant theme throughout Paul's theology. You'll notice that his, his favorite way of describing believers is to say they are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And he repeatedly addresses Christians as those who are in Christ. Romans 16, verse 7, he sends greetings to Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding to the apostles who also were in Christ before me, meaning they became Christians before Paul did. And the verse I quoted earlier, Romans 8, verse 1, ties our union with Christ to the doctrine of justification. Therefore, there is, the, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So follow the line of thought here. If we are in union with Christ so that his righteousness counts as our righteousness and his life counts as our life, then his death and resurrection counts for us as well. And that is the argument Paul makes In the verses that lead up to our passage, starting in verse 2, we read it this morning, and we can't really go verse by verse through that whole passage, but I hope the sense of it is clear to you. The the gist of those first 10 verses is this. If we are united with Christ, and then in a spiritual sense, we're already dead and resurrected, and it doesn't make sense to continue sinning if you are dead to sin and raised precisely to walk in newness of life. Meaning that sin in the life of a Christian is a contradiction. It's an anomaly in the Christian experience. It is utterly out of place and totally inconsistent with who we are, and yet we all struggle with it. There's been a a lot of discussion about whether Paul is referring to water baptism in verse 3. One thing is clear. He he is not suggesting that the ritual of water baptism in and of itself is what unites us with Christ. According to Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. We are united with him by faith. And what water baptism does is symbolize and signify that union, and, and especially Baptism is a picture of our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is graphically pictured in the way we immerse people in baptism. And Paul's argument is this, since we are spiritually participants in Christ's death and resurrection, we have, in effect, died to sin. Verse 6, our old man, that is, the person I was before my salvation, 
was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So what he's saying there in simple terms is I'm a different person now than I once was before I was saved. I'm a different person and I should live like it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 again, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And here in Romans 6, Paul is using a series of words that outline the steps of sanctification. You could paraphrase them like this. Know, consider, resist, present, obey, and serve. And there's a progression there in those verbs that he uses. So I want you to follow it. Know. No, K-N-O-W. There's some doctrinal truth that underlies our sanctification that we need to lay hold of with the intellect. We need to know certain things. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Then consider, he says, verse 11, he's saying we have a moral responsibility to embrace the truth and Take it into account in all of our thinking, verse 11, so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then resist. He says we also have a duty to act on the spiritual truth that we know by resisting the power of sin in our everyday lives, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting your members as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And then he uses that word present, meaning there's a, a duty to surrender all of our faculties to God, verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then obey, he's suggesting that true submission involves an active and deliberate kind of obedience it's not a passive thing. It's not let go and let God. But obey, verse 16. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And then serve. The bottom line in sanctification is that we exchange the slavery, our slavery to sin we exchange that for a different kind of slavery so that it's not a question of whether we are slaves. The question is, whose slaves are we? Verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And that's the whole matter in a nutshell. No, consider, resist, present, obey, and serve. And I want you to notice all of those are active verbs. None of them call for passivity. Sanctification is the process of perfecting a new kind of slavery. If we want real freedom, freedom from sin, then we must become slaves of righteousness. To slavery. Now, the yoke is easy and the burden is light, but it's still a yoke. The truest kind of freedom is itself a kind of slavery. 
And that's the essence of Romans 6. And it's summed up perfectly in our passage. This passage is an exhortation to exchange one kind of slavery for another. So what he's saying is, in the same way that you once served sin, you must now serve righteousness. In the same way that you once handed your body over to its own lusts, you must now present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. So let's look closely now at these four verses, verses 11 through 14. And notice that verse 11 lays a doctrinal foundation. Verses 12 and 13 practically apply that doctrine. They apply it in practical terms. And then verse 14 gives us a motive for taking all of this very seriously. And so we'll let that be our outline. First, we'll look at the doctrinal foundation, verse 11. Then verses 12 and 13 are pure practical application. And then you see in verse 14 the spiritual motivation that Paul gives for the command in verses 12 and 13. So that's our outline if you want to write it down. A doctrinal foundation, a practical application, and a spiritual motivation. So first, the doctrinal foundation. Verse 11 sums up in one simple statement everything Paul has said in verses 1 through 10 about our spiritual participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. This doctrine, he says, ought to frame the way we view our relationship to sin and to God. I was thinking about this last week during Easter. This is the heart of the matter here. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God. That is the implication of our spiritual union with Christ. That's why we cannot continue living the way we did before our justification. You can't do that and and live at peace with it. Now, I hinted at something earlier that, that I want to elaborate on just a little bit here. Because the minute you speak of doctrine, there are always some people who think, well, you're dealing with something now that's inherently impractical and theoretical and abstract, hypothetical, academic. This is for seminary students, but it's irrelevant in the real world. But here, I hope you can see clearly why that is not a helpful perspective at all. It's doctrine that has brought Paul to this point. For five and a half chapters, he's been systematically expounding profound doctrinal themes, and all the doctrines he has dealt with now converge and culminate in this truth that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So here's a doctrine that has obvious and immediate practical ramifications. The reason Paul took five and a half chapters to get to this point is you don't just skip to practical matters. Objective doctrinal truth is not incidental, it is foundational. And if you remove the doctrinal foundations from the Christian faith, as many people have tried to do, you end up with sheer moralism, and it's an empty, worthless, works-based, man-centered religion. One of the reasons I am so opposed to the popular trends in modern evangelicalism is that most of those trends have systematically undermined and sabotaged the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. And if you do that, you destroy Christianity altogether. You eliminate the possibility of faith. Visit the typical evangelical megachurch today, and you will hear practical messages 
with precious little doctrine. Doctrine is considered too controversial. It's too confusing for unchurched people. And so they simply skip most of it and and cater to people's itching ears. You know, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy that a time like this would come when people will not endure sound doctrine. That's 2 Timothy 4.3. And we live in such a time, and apparently there are still plenty of church leaders who, who are perfectly willing to give people exactly what they want, tickle their ears. The problem with that, Paul said, is that when people are deprived of sound doctrine, they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths, fables, stories, movie plots, and socially constructed narratives. And without a proper foundation of sound doctrine, all the practical exhortation in the world is, it boils down to nothing more than pious moralism. And that's why Paul spent several chapters here laying the doctrinal foundation of justification by faith so that when he gets to chapter 6 and he begins to exhort his hearers, his readers, to, to yield their members as instruments of righteousness unto God, no one who's read this in context could possibly imagine that Paul is teaching that we can save ourselves by reforming ourselves. Everything he has to say here about obedience hinges on the truth of our union with Christ and our spiritual participation in his death and resurrection. By the way, I also want to say that along with those who aren't interested in doctrine because they think it's not practical enough, there is also an equal opposite error. There are other people who are obsessed with academic doctrine and and they aren't interested in obedience so that doctrine is just an intellectual hobby with them. They love to engage in philosophical debates over controversial points of doctrine, but in the end, their interest is academic only. They're hearers of the word, but not doers. And that is just as bad as, maybe it's even worse than, ignoring doctrine altogether and just skipping to the practical stuff. Jesus said in John 13:17, "If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them." And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13:2, "If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I have nothing." He's saying there, one of the things he's saying there, one of the ramifications of what he says there is you can have all the doctrinal knowledge in the world, but if it is not accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit, it's worthless. Doctrine is always to be applied. Truth is not something merely for our intellectual consideration. There's always an application, and we are commanded to become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's James 1.22. And here in Romans 6... Doctrine and practice come together in perfect harmony. Our union with Christ means that we are dead to sin but alive to God. And as we are about to see, the practical implications of that idea are enormous. You can't make progress in sanctification unless you know this truth and reckon it to be true in your own experience. He's saying, let this frame your whole worldview. Think of yourself as dead to sin. Reckon it to be true. And the the Greek word that's translated in the version I'm reading, I think it's the legacy standard version. I forgot what I put in my notes, but I'm sure it's 
legacy standard version. The Greek word there is translated consider, verse 11. But the Greek word is logizomai, and it is the same word that the translators of the authorized version translate as impute. Throughout Romans 4, God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And wherever Paul speaks about the imputation of righteousness in Romans 4 and elsewhere, this is the word he uses. He's saying God reckons believers to be righteous. He imputes righteousness to them. He accounts them as righteous. He doesn't count their sins against them. Or as the Legacy Standard Bible has it, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is all the same concept. It's all the same Greek word, logizomai. And here Paul is saying that in a similar way, we need to consider or reckon or account or, 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 or reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. In other words, suppose it to be so. Judge it to be so. Operate on that assumption. And that is the proper perspective of our relationship to sin and to God. We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. In fact, I like how the King James Version makes this emphatic. It says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed. Saying, in other words, this is not fiction, it's fact. It's a spiritual reality, but it is a reality. Consider it real. Reckon it to be a fact. It's a fact. It is a fact. Think like that, and you will live like that. That is the whole key to sanctification and victory over sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Now, notice, he's not saying that sin is dead. Sin is very much alive, and sin is still seeking to have dominion over us. In fact, not only is sin alive and trying to rule us, he says, verse 12, it's in our mortal bodies. You can't get away from it. It's in you. But he says, we are dead to sin. We are beyond the reach of its dominion. Colossians 3, verse 3, you died and your life has been hid with Christ in God. If you understand that, that is a liberating truth. We were once dead to God and hopelessly enslaved to sin. Now, because of our spiritual union with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive with Christ in God. And if you genuinely embrace that truth, make that the heart of your worldview. Let it frame your perspective on everything you do. It will change the way you live. Romans 6, verse 7, For he who has died to sin has been justified and, in other words, set free from sin. That's the doctrinal foundation of our text for this morning. So let me move on to the second point, and this is the practical application, verses 12 and 13. Give us the practical application in three simple admonitions. The first one is in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, one thing leaps out clearly, first of all. There is nothing passive about how we should respond to sin. This is calling for an aggressive, active, assertive resistance against the dominance of sin in our lives. This is something, in other words, that we have to do. It is an imperative. It is an exhortation. It is a command to be obeyed. It doesn't present sanctification the way so many deeper life teachers do, you know, as a a gift to be received passively by faith. 
you know, through an act of surrender or a resignation from all of our human efforts. Paul does not tell us to let go and let God. He doesn't suggest that all we have to do is abandon our own efforts and allow Christ to live his life in us. But on the contrary, what he's calling for is an active resistance, effort, opposition to the tyranny of sin. This is clean contrary to the kind of deeper life doctrine, you know, where sanctification is portrayed as an instantaneous deliverance from the power of sin's temptation. And you know, countless Christians are seeking exactly that kind of experience. They want to reach a plateau where they're not tempted anymore. That doesn't happen. In fact, that's poisonous theology, and it's spawned tons of errors. That's where the charismatic movement comes from. It's what every kind of perfectionist teaching and deeper life doctrine claims. All of them promise uh, a quick and easy deliverance from sin, usually by uh, you know, some kind of single, one-time, one passive act of faith. And after that, victory is supposed to be easy. I, I followed that kind of teaching for years as a college student, and it's deadly. And it would be nice if it were really that simple to be rid of the problem of sin, but that is not how the Bible portrays the Christian warfare. The Bible says the Christian life is warfare, warfare specifically against sin. There's nothing about it that can be passive. Christians who think sanctification comes to us when we let go, they're usually frustrated and miserable because what they are seeking doesn't exist. And so when they fall, they grow discouraged and they question their own salvation. And I have personally known many who pursued the promise of once for all victory over sin until they finally gave up in defeat or made shipwreck of the faith. But if that's what you're looking for, you are seeking something the Bible doesn't promise. Sanctification, unlike justification, sanctification is not a gift to be received by faith alone. Also, Unlike justification, sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process whereby God gradually conforms us to the image of his son. And it is true that it is, of course, a work of God in us, and it's not ultimately the fruit of our independent efforts. But at the same time, don't imagine that your sanctification is a work that God can accomplish without your efforts. There is work we must do in the process of our sanctification. Scripture commands us to do these things, and our part begins with a determined effort to resist the power and the dominion of sin. Don't let it reign, Paul says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And by the way, what does he mean by your mortal body? It seems to be he's talking about your physical body. That's the part of you that is mortal. Immortality and corruption always go hand in hand. But if you listen closely, you'll often hear me stress that we are not to interpret language like this to mean that there's something about our physical bodies that are inherently evil or that you know, our, our material frame is where the evil principle lies. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20, out of the heart, and there he's talking about the immaterial part of man, not the literal blood-pumping organ, but out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. 
So he's saying it's, it's your mind, your immaterial person that spawns all these evil thoughts. So he's not, definitely not connecting it only with the, the literal flesh, although Scripture frequently refers to this principle of sin in us as the flesh. It's because the physical body is a fitting symbol of that corruption that holds us back because the body itself is subject to death and decay. And the body is also where our sin is usually manifest. Most sinful lusts are bodily instincts which in and of themselves are not necessarily evil, but sin turns them into inordinate affections. And those lusts of the flesh get out of control and try to dominate us. And Paul is saying, don't yield to that. Don't let that happen. Fight against it. And when we are finally liberated from this fallen flesh by death or by the second coming of Christ, we will also then at last be free from the presence of sin. But as long as we are in this body, until the body itself is glorified, sin will pose a problem for us. And that's why Paul often uses the mortal body, the flesh, as a kind of shorthand expression for this principle of sin that indwells us and dominates us or tries to dominate us. He's actually talking about that that's principle of sin that remains in us even after we are converted. And, and it will remain until the corruptible puts on incorruption and the mortal puts on immortality. So you have to keep fighting against it. Don't ever think you'll reach a plateau where you don't have to fight anymore. And don't get too hung up on the fact that he refers to the mortal body or the flesh. He's not saying that your physical being is irredeemably evil. Your body will be glorified and freed from sin as well. This is just another way of saying, don't let sin reign in you, in your mind or your body, while you're still in this fallen flesh. Don't yield to sin. Don't acquiesce to its demands. Don't give in to your lusts. Don't follow the habits you established before you came to saving faith. There are two more practical admonitions in verse 13. One is negative and the other is positive. We'll cover these quickly. The negative one says, don't go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now that obviously includes your physical body, all the body parts, your limbs, your digits, your organs, your other members, but it also includes the immaterial powers and the faculties of your mind, your emotions, and your will. He's saying don't yield any part of yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness. You're dead to sin, so live like it. And there's another side to this too. This is the positive admonition, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. If your members, think about this, if the members of your makeup, that includes your physical members and your mind and, and emotions and all that, if these things are employed in service to God, they cannot be servants of sin. And that's only fitting for people who are dead to sin but alive unto God. So again, this calls for active, deliberate effort on our part. There's nothing passive about it. Some translations use the word yield in this verse. I like the word the Legacy Standard Bible uses, present, because what Paul is talking about here is not passive surrender. He's speaking of an active employment of all of our faculties in the service of God as slaves of righteousness, to borrow language from verse 18. And that is 
the path to sanctification. It starts with a doctrinal foundation grounded in the fact of our union with Christ and our spiritual participation in his death and resurrection. It goes from there to the realm of practical application with these three simple exhortations that set forth really our whole duty with regard to sanctification. And in fact, I wish we had time this morning to outline all of the various practical ways of resisting sin and yielding your members as servants to righteousness. A few years ago, I think I did a study on Colossians 3, verse 5, and and that command there to mortify the deeds of the body. You can still get that recording or listen to it on the internet. But that message outlined a, a number of practical suggestions for yielding your members to God. So, so I don't need to rehash it this morning, but I want to move on now to point three. We've seen the doctrinal foundation. We've talked about the practical application. Now look at the spiritual motivation. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Now I barely have time to summarize what that means. If we had time to do a proper exegesis of that verse, There's really a lot I would love to deal with, the contrast between law and grace. The question of what law this refers to, is this the law of Moses or or divine law in general or moral law in particular, or what is the law he's got in mind? And, And the question of what does he mean when he says you're not under law? We'll have to save that for another time. This morning, I just want you to see Paul's main point in this verse. And notice, by the way, that when he makes this contrast between law and grace, he immediately raises a question that is similar to the one he began the chapter with. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to answering this second question. Paul doesn't make this statement in verse 14 in order to introduce a new subject. Verse 14 is actually Paul's conclusion to the discussion of verses 1 through 13. And that conjunction 4 at the beginning of the verse, clearly ties it to what he's been saying up to this point. So this is the culmination and the conclusion to all the admonitions of verses 12 and 13. And at first glance, it might be hard to see how the logic of verse 14 works. How does this fit into Paul's argument? But here's why he says this. He's giving us a motive and an incentive for obeying those commands in verses 12 and 13. He's answering a question that he hasn't put in words yet, but it's this. Uh, Why should we resist sin's efforts to dominate us? And, And why should we yield our members as instruments of righteousness? And the answer is because sin will not have dominion over you. This is not a hopeless or endless struggle. It may sound like that when I say the principle of sin will be with you as long as you're in this flesh, but it's not endless. This is a battle in which the ultimate victory is guaranteed for all who are truly in Christ. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I wish time did permit us to go into detail about what Paul means when he says we're not under law. We'll say that for another time. I think I've dealt with it before as well. But for now, let me just say that he clearly does not mean that the moral principles of the law don't apply to us anymore. I mean, that's, he starts out the whole chapter saying we can't continue in sin. We're not liberated from any, any responsibility to obey moral principles. And, and after all, the law is what defines what sin is. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. 
And he's saying we shouldn't let sin reign in our mortal bodies, so he certainly doesn't mean that we're free to ignore the moral demands of God's law. So what does he mean when he says we're not under law? He means this, very simply. We're not under the law's curse. We don't have to be motivated by fear. We are not condemned to death and damnation for every failure, and failure is never the end of the matter because divine grace covers us with God's forgiveness and grace also empowers us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. God's grace, which is a a positive and powerful force, is now the governing principle in our lives. And so ultimate triumph is assured because whom God justifies, he also glorifies. Sin shall not gain dominion over us. It might try, it does try, but it won't win, and that is a powerful incentive to obey. That's the point Paul's making here, and it's a powerful point. He elaborates on it again in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us All things, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that is not a powerful motive to pursue sanctification, then you haven't really laid hold of this truth at all yet, and you need to pray that God will open your eyes to it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this truth, for the reality, as we celebrated and remembered last week on Easter, the reality of Christ's resurrection and this corresponding truth that we are participants in that, that we've died to sin, that we've been raised unto, to walk in newness of life, to live our lives hid with Christ in God. May we reckon that to be true, and may we live our lives accordingly For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.